This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on August 29th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. And yesterday, August 28th, was the 175th anniversary of the publication of the first issue of Scientific American. Our current issue, the September issue, looks at the history of the magazine, from the content to how the word usage has changed to how the look has evolved. And on this episode of the podcast... Uh, It has been around since the discovery of the electron. It has been around since before the germ theory of disease. It has been around for a very long time. What it has not been around longer than is stupidity. That's former Scientific American editor-in-chief John Rennie. He gave a talk in 2008 to a group of New York City skeptics that went into some of our history. I've also prepared a segment about a handful of the dumber things we've done since 1845. And we'll also hear a segment sponsored by the Kavli Prize with legendary astrophysicist Alan Guth. First, part of John Rennie's talk, some of which ran as an episode of Science Talk back in 2008. Scientific American has been around since August 28th of 1845. It was was just four pages long for big newspaper-like pages. It had lots of uh, old patent announcements, and it had poetry, and it had uh, little reports on science, and all kinds of things. Having been around since 1845, this is a very long time. Obviously, this is around since basically about the beginning of the second industrial revolution. This is before the Civil War. This is so early that we know that that Thomas Edison read it as a boy. And we know Thomas Edison read it as a boy because he came to the offices of the editors and told them when he was demonstrating his uh, invention of the phonograph for the first time. Having been around since 1845, I mean, Scientific American has been around since before airplanes, since before automobiles, since before x-rays, since before relativity, obviously. Uh, It has been around since the discovery of the electron. It has been around since before the germ theory of disease. It has been around for a very long time. What it has not been around longer than is stupidity. And that is something that at some level the editors and writers for Scientific American have always dealt with during that, uh, that very long history. And so I'm going to try to, to, to show you just a few highlights or lowlights, as the case may be, of some of Scientific American's uh, experience with that. The golden era of Scientific American's involvement with anything like skepticism was really back in the, uh, the late teens, 1920s. Um, because during this time, Scientific American was involved with several different projects uh, that, that were aimed at, at trying to debunk uh, various things that were of, of questionable scientific accuracy. One of them had to do with the whole area of, it looked uh, very critically at different areas of medical quackery. And to that end, this is maybe the one that they were probably most famous for. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the electronic reactions of Abrams? Not, not too many, probably. It's, it's, these days, it's, it's not very well known. Take my word for it, however, that at the time, in the early 1920s, this was one of the major health fads sweeping the United States. It was uh, founded by Dr. Albert Abrams, who uh, came up with this, uh, this radiological approach to uh, diagnosis and ultimately treatment for disease. And, uh, and it was so 
so compelling, it was so attractive to a lot of the United States that, uh, that it actually started to win over different practitioners and the AMA started to see it as a major threat. And they were mounting their own efforts to try to defeat the spread of the ERA. And, uh, and Scientific American was pulled in uh, to, to try to help debunk this as well. And so let's start by just talking about the ERA itself. Dr. Abrams seems to have hit about something around 1916 or so. He seems to have had this idea for, uh, for approaching diagnosis that involved a device that he called the dynamizer. This is the magic of how the ERA actually worked. The ER, with the ERA, the patient would uh, give a blood sample, or it could be a sample of pretty much anything. Indeed, over time, it started to become something so liberal that um, it went from just blood or other body fluids to the point where, uh, where Abrams was saying that you could take handwriting or just pictures of people, and that would be taken and would be inserted into the dynamizer. The dynamizer, then the wires from the dynamizer would then reach up and be attached to a healthy person who would have to orient themselves facing west because that was very important and they would hold these things here and they would attach the other leads as necessary and then the practitioner would come up and would palpate this, this control person's belly and listen and from the sounds he could determine what was wrong with the person who had given the blood sample. Because, you see, and this is going to be scientific, so some of you may want to, I, if you ask me to repeat this, I will, because it's very complicated. The electronic resonances associated with the diseased atoms would migrate up through the wires and would alter the electronic resonances of this person. And so, the, the practitioner could then listen to this and could determine it. Now, why it was he didn't just go and listen to the diseased person, I actually don't know. Even now, it's not really clear. But, uh, but this was great because Abrams would sell these boxes for like $400 to people who were licensed to become new ERA practitioners. And the great thing was that the, part of the license was you were not for any reason allowed to open up the box and look inside. <laughs> And, and so, you know, he was selling this and he was also then selling different sorts of seminars, teaching people how to use the devices. He was minting money. He made millions of dollars in the early 1920s, which was an appreciable sum of money. Oh, and this, by the way, he didn't just stop at diagnosis. He also moved on to the area of treatment. Because, of course, if you can use these resonances to diagnose what's wrong, by reversing the polarity using a device called the oscilloclast, which is kind of an inverted dynamizer, he could then actually, he could then actually correct the resonances and fix whatever was wrong with you. And it was great. I mean, after a while, he was just, he was just fixing pretty much anything with this. And he was even being uh, used to, uh, at some point, identify where people might be. I mean, Abrams, at one point, didn't stop short of actually taking a photograph of someone and using his dynamizer to uh, look at a map and figure out where that person might be. Can you imagine why the health authorities thought this might actually be worth stopping? So Scientific Americans stepped into this, and they undertook a nine-month investigation of the ERA in which they painstakingly, laboriously looked at all the claims for it and treated it exactly the way. It was a model of investigation because they basically said, all right, 
they, the Abrams would not cooperate with this. Abrams wanted nothing to do with it. But Scientific American found one practitioner who was willing to cooperate. Dr. X, as he's referred to in the, uh, in the, in the magazine at the time. And Dr. X would consent to this. And so Dr. X would say, this is how ERA works. This is what you're supposed to do. And the panel that Scientific American put together would then say, all right, if that's the case, well, let's try this. So they started them with this, this great test in which they, uh, they gave uh, the uh, ERA practitioner, Dr. X, they gave him uh, a series of pure germ cultures in test tubes and basically said, so here it is, this is the purified causative agent of these. It's unlabeled, just tell us what this is. Because if you can certainly diagnose that someone has, say, syphilis in their bodies from, from this process, from a blood sample, then if we give you pure germ culture, you should certainly be able to identify it that way. And Dr. X agreed that this was a good test. And uh, the results were actually amazing because the results were that he didn't get any of them right. He got all of them wrong. In fact, he actually, it was, it was, it was beyond what you would have imagined, that just random chance you would have thought he would have gotten some of them right. Well, Dr. X did not take this lying down because he, he looked at it and he said, oh, well, here's the problem. You see, the labels that you've written this, some, some of them have red ink. Well, the redness of the label has, is interfering with the resonance. So they changed that and they kept doing this. They kept doing this over and over again, month after month. Every time they would test it and ERA would fail, then the, there was always some sort of excuse and, uh, and they would correct for this and they would go back and do it again and again. And they eventually got to the point where they, they did somehow find a dynamizer and they just tore it open and looked inside. And they determined that the dynamizer inside was, as you would probably have imagined, a complete rat's nest of just wires that in some cases weren't connected to anything. They were just, it was just looked complicated if you even did peek inside. Some of them didn't even, didn't even connect to the external leads on this thing. So after nine months, Scientific American finally came to its own conclusion on all of this. And their verdict, and this was part of a much longer article denouncing all of this, but as you can see, it, it basically said, this committee finds that the claims advanced on behalf of the electronic reactions of Abrams uh, and of electronic practice in general are not substantiated. And it is our belief that they have no basis. In fact, in our opinion, the so-called electronic reactions do not occur, and the so-called electronic treatments are without value. It was a model example of the kind of thing I think we would all like to see when, when it's possible to try to, to take some sorts of medical quackery and subject it to good skeptical scrutiny all the way through. Scientific American was not always so successful in this regard. Um, because around the same time, another series of things that it was involved with was looking at the spiritualism movement. Spiritualism, very, very big at the time. Lots of seances uh, were going on. And Scientific American undertook a, uh, a, a, a competition in which they basically, they were promising uh, two $2,500 prizes to any, any medium, any spiritual medium, who could demonstrate certain things, of being able to demonstrate a physical manifestation to the satisfaction of the investigating board, or, or could otherwise, uh, um, I think, otherwise just show other sorts of proofs of this. And they went through for months after months, really years, looking at different mediums and, uh, and, and just you know, blowing them up. Um, Harry Houdini was part of the team that would travel around with Scientific American. 
I don't believe that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was actually part of this because, of course, he was a little soft on the subject of spiritualism. But uh, he was involved with this uh, a lot as well. And, uh, and there was one editor, uh, Malcolm C. Bird, who was the, the wonderfully named Malcolm C. Bird, who was the uh, managing editor of Scientific American at the time. And it's pretty clear when you read back through the accounts that they wrote of these, these, uh, their attempts to bust these different um, seances, that uh, Bird was kind of sympathetic to the spiritualist cause. It was pretty clear that he actually, in a lot of cases, really wanted to find a ghost in some of these. However, the, the board that they put together, the panel they would send to these uh, seances, uh, never, they, you know, they found what they found. They kept finding fraud after fraud. This all came to a head, however, when eventually came to look at the case of a, of a, a, famous, a famous spirit medium whose name was Mina Crandon, but, um, but she was uh, generally referred to as Marjorie. This became sort of the downfall of Scientific American's uh, ghost-busting crusade. Because uh, Marjorie, Marjorie was, you know, she would have these uh, various meetings in which she would just seemingly uh, just would show amazing things and prove that she just had amazing contact with the spirit world, often through the medium of Walter. Walter, who was the, the male voice who would speak through her at these times. People were uh, really quite impressed with the job that she was doing. And apparently, um, now this is something I'm getting directly from, from Penn Jillette um, himself. Because when I was telling this story back at the amazing meeting last year, uh, Penn Jillette was actually able to elaborate on this because he had, had met and had interviewed the granddaughter of, of uh, Mina Crandon. And uh, the granddaughter was able to confirm uh, certain things. Mina was kind of a looker. And uh, apparently she would do a lot of her seances in the nude. <laughs> this may have sort of softened some of the skepticism uh, that was associated with this. And that may, in fact, have actually affected when, when Scientific American's investigative team showed up and actually started living in the Crandon's house in Boston. Malcolm Byrd is just transfixed with Mina. He just thinks she's great. When you read those accounts, he is strongly believing that he has finally, finally found the genuine article. And again, I can only cite what Penn Jillette told me about this, that apparently, according to uh, Marjorie's uh, granddaughter, yes, she really was sleeping with all of them, um, which was convenient. Uh, not for Scientific American, however, because Scientific American was well on its way toward forking over those $5,000 in prize money. But then, and it was prepared to do this while Harry Houdini, who was properly part of the team, was not there. He was, he was off on tour. And he heard about the fact, he was reading that it looked like Scientific American was closing in on doing this, and he, so he rushed back so he could be there for another seance that involved all of them. And in the, he's there for the seance, he was very upset that Malcolm Byrd and the other members of the panel seemed ready to award this. And in the middle of, uh, of the seance, at one point, Harry Houdini leaps to his feet and points to some evidence of fakery and is denouncing her right in the middle of it. And Malcolm Byrd leaps to his feet and starts to vigorously defend Mina's honor, which led to what I am 
I get the impression was then a fist fight of some sort that broke out between Harry Houdini and Malcolm Byrd. And I, I think it is probably an excess of my own imagination that imagines it spilling out into the street somehow. <laughs> Because I really can't imagine that in a fist fight between Harry Houdini and Malcolm Byrd that it would last very long. <laughs> However, it was enough to pretty much destroy uh, the ghost-busting attempts of Scientific American at that point. So it never actually gave out the $5,000 in prizes. Yay. John Rennie was the seventh editor-in-chief in Scientific American's history. He's now at Quantum Magazine. It's been my great good fortune to be at Scientific American during his tenure as well as his successors, Marianne DeCristina, now Dean of the College of Communications at Boston University, and the recently arrived Laura Helmuth, late of the Washington Post. Alan Guth is also part of Scientific American's history. In 1984, he and Paul Steinhardt published a seminal article titled The Inflationary Universe, Here's a short segment, about six minutes long, with Guth, sponsored by the Kavli Prize. Pocket universes, primordial black holes, and a two-headed arrow of time. It may sound like the stuff of science fiction, but for physicist Alan Guth, it's just another day at the office, pondering the mysteries of the universe. In 2014, Guth was awarded the Kavli Prize in Astrophysics, for his role in developing the theory of cosmic inflation. It's kind of a prequel to the Big Bang theory. Cosmic inflation sets up the conditions for the Big Bang, and in particular, it provides a possible answer to the question of what propelled the Big Bang, what caused the explosion, what was it that banged. As part of our partnership with the Kavli Prize, Scientific American Custom Media sat down with Guth to learn more about the biggest questions in cosmology including where our universe comes from, what else is out there, and how inflation could lead us toward the discovery of dark matter. But first, what did drive the Big Bang? It was caused by gravitational repulsion. Now, you may think of gravity, if you think of it at all, as being attractive. That's why what goes up must come down. But Einstein's theory of general relativity suggests that some peculiar materials can create gravitational repulsion. Inflation is based on the hypothesis that the early universe contained at least a speck of this repulsive gravity material. That speck then starts to inflate, and the expansion is actually exponential. So it doubles and doubles and doubles again. Eventually, this rapid growth dilutes the repulsion. So the expansion slows somewhat, and the universe starts to cool. As it cooled, it also clumped, forming stars and galaxies and clusters of galaxies and a very complicated tapestry of the distribution of matter. But what triggered inflation in the first place? That, we really don't know. But if you start with matter at extraordinarily high temperatures, it's reasonably likely that somewhere there'll be a patch of this repulsive gravity material that could then start to inflate. And according to Guth and his colleagues, it's possible that this exponential expansion still continues outside of our universe. Once inflation starts, it never ends all at once. Rather, it ends in places, and in places where it ends, universes form. We call them pocket universes because they're not everything that exists. We would be living in one of these pocket universes. And even though the pocket universes keep forming, there's always a larger and larger volume of just inflating repulsive gravity material. 
And that can go on forever, producing an infinite number of these pocket universes in a never-ending procession. And looking backward, Guth is trying to catch a glimpse of what was there before inflation got started. That, of course, is a fascinating question, which is something I've been working on a paper making very little progress with Sean Carroll. The idea would be that the universe actually is eternal, existed at all times, so there is no beginning to explain. To make sense of that, you have to wrap your mind around this. The laws of physics themselves don't seem to make any significant distinction between the future and the past. What we call the future is simply the direction of higher entropy. Entropy being a measure of disorder. In its early moments, the universe had less entropy, or less disorder, than it has now. But what would happen if we followed the arrow of time back even further? The curious thing is what happens if you take this essentially random initial state that we were talking about and follow it in the opposite direction, the direction that we were previously calling the past. If you follow it backwards in time, the entropy will start to grow in that direction also. That may sound like people would be living backwards and talking backwards and not know what they're talking about, but I think the people living there will not feel anything different from what we feel, except that what they will call the future will be what we are looking back and calling the past. In the present, Guth is now trying to figure out how wrinkles in the fabric of space produced during inflation could trigger the formation of a still hypothetical cosmic beast called a primordial black hole. Primordial black holes produced in this way could be the seeds that led to the supermassive black holes that we see in the centers of galaxies, uh, black holes that have millions and even billions of solar masses. So they're really huge black holes. The other possibility is that primordial black holes could conceivably be the dark matter that we are trying so hard to identify. Finding this mysterious material would explain a lot about our universe. If the only matter in the galaxy was the matter we see, then there would not be nearly enough gravity to hold the galaxies together spinning as fast as we now know they're spinning. They would just fly apart. So the assumption is that there must be other matter present to create a stronger gravitational field to hold the matter in, even at these high velocities. And that's dark matter. Whether or not he finds it, Guth is enjoying the search. I think all people strive for something beyond just maintaining the basic necessities of life. Science has, for me, the very attractive feature of asking the question of what is the world around us actually about? How did it begin? Where is it going? What causes it to exist in the first place? Those, to me, are the big questions that are really fascinating. And even though we don't necessarily expect to answer those questions next year, anything that makes small steps towards understanding the answers to those questions, to me, is very thrilling. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Kavli Prize. The Kavli Prize recognizes scientists for pioneering advances in the fields of astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the U.S.-based Kavli Foundation. Alan Guth is a Victor F. Weisskopf Professor of Physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 2009, Guth was part of a panel discussion at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I ran highlights of that roundtable on this podcast. Just search for Stars of Cosmology, parts one and two, to get his and his colleagues' thoughts on the state of cosmology at that time.
In 175 years, you make some errors. And in the current issue of the magazine, the September issue, there's an article that uh, holds our own feet to the fire about some of the more important errors that this publication has made in the last 175 years. I, on the other hand, took a few minutes to research some of the less important errors we've made in the last 175 years. Way back in 1846, we shared a terrible notion about boat propellers. Quote, It is truly astonishing, we wrote, that men of capital in England persist in keeping themselves so totally ignorant of the plain philosophical principles of mechanics as to suppose that a propeller of any form on the screw principle can compete with the simple Fultonian paddle wheel, end quote. What we missed was that as a ship rolls, more of one side of the paddle is submerged, causing that side to put out more power. The steering issue that results is just one reason for the lack today of paddle-driven aircraft carriers. Our original take on propellers was clearly a bad spin. In 1869, we had ideas for a better way to get between Manhattan and Brooklyn than by a suspension bridge. Quote, J.W. Morse has devised a bridge which permits of a much lighter construction than a normal suspension bridge and is, consequently, much cheaper to build. Mr. Morse's project provides for transportation across the river in a giant platform suspended by means of cables from a trolley running upon a gantry across the river. The fact that the traveler hangs only three feet above the water and hence is almost at street level makes it easy for heavily loaded wagons to cross the river and will be appreciated by the workmen returning home on foot after a hard day's toil in the factory or warehouse, end quote. As far as I'm concerned, if there's anything worse than being 130 feet above the East River, it's being three feet above the East River. As you heard from John Rennie, Scientific American in the 1920s was enthusiastic about debunking seance holders who claimed to communicate with the dead. But in 1923, we advocated that some mediums, not the, quote, blatant fraud who swindles widows out of their insurance money through messages from their deceased husbands, end quote, but some mediums should get compensated for their services. Quote, for after all, even a medium must live. Nobody has ever suggested that the doctor ought to have a job on the side as carpenter or hack driver, earning his living from this and giving such time as he can spare from it to the gratuitous healing of disease. The medium, to the people he serves, gives just as real a service as does the doctor. Why ask him to give it for nothing? End quote. A century later, we here at Scientific American are all out of even any small medium largesse. We weren't all that worried about our own income either, at least in 1849. In May of that year, we apologized to the readership for bombarding them with two and a half columns of ads in the entire issue. In 1915, we took stock and set forth a stance we still maintain, quote, Time and the increasing importance of advertising in modern journalism changed that haughty attitude, end quote. It's 2020, we still don't have flying cars, and if human beings' driving ability on the ground is any indication, thank goodness we don't have flying cars. But back in 1915, we were looking forward to transparent planes. Quote, Military authorities await with great interest the development of the new French invisible aeroplane. Over the aluminum framework, instead of canvas, 
is stretched a transparent material called cellon, C-E-L-L-O-N, a chemical combination of cellulose and acetic acid. Of almost the same transparency as glass, it does not crack or splinter and has the toughness and pliability of rubber, end quote. Which is true, and which is why it's used today for eyeglass frames. Of course, we can't say for sure that there are no French invisible airplanes. In 1913, we reported on the discovery of the fossil skull that came to be known as Piltdown Man. Quote, In Piltdown Common, Sussex, England, an English paleontologist, Mr. Dawson, discovered about a year ago a fairly complete human skull representing the most ancient relic of the human race in the British Isles, and one of the oldest found anywhere, end quote. And two years later, we ran a scholarly analysis of the find by Professor P.W. Pycraft of the British Museum. In that piece, titled Mankind in the Making, the Direct Ancestor of the Modern Man and What He Looked Like, Pycraft wrote, quote, While the skull is essentially human, that is to say, it is the skull of a member of the genus Homo, though representing a man of low grade, the jaw, on the other hand, is almost that of an ape, end quote. Piltdown Man was eventually revealed to be a hoax made of parts of a human skull and an orangutan jaw. When Pycraft said the jaw was almost that of an ape, he was almost right. Finally, in 1883, we thought that nobody would really want telephones. Quote, Despite the fact that recent experiments have demonstrated the possibility of telephoning over long circuits, it is to be doubted if the instrument will be used otherwise than locally. There is no system of signals as clear as the present Morse code, as interpreted by the sounder. By telephone, it is the sound of a word and not its vowel and consonants which the operator receives, and a mistake can easily happen, even out of the best conditions. End quote. Well, yes, that's why the game is called Telephone. Actually, we might ultimately have been somewhat right. With the advent of texting, many of us apparently prefer those mini telegrams to talking. Comedian Gary Goldman sums it up. To me, the phone is just this seldom used app on my phone. And if you use it on me, I am furious. How dare you? You call me unprovoked out of the blue? You text me first to see if I'm even accepting phone calls today. And I will text you back with a window. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 